It's great to be here. It's great to be in the book of Mark. We've been in the book for seven weeks, I think. And so, have anybody been here for all seven weeks of Mark so far? Anybody? Oh, Pastor John would raise his hand. He, he, he doesn't even really apply because he hasn't really been here the seven weeks. He's been other places too. But anyways, but it's great to see you and it's great to, to be here. And so we're going to be looking into the book of Mark. And I'd like to ask you a question as it relates to whether you're familiar with this term. The term is nuns, not N-U-N-S. I think we all know a nun or two, but the term nuns being N-O-N-E-S. Those are the people that mark none on the surveys for religious affiliation. There's actually a term for that, um, which I wasn't familiar with until I started looking into this, this message today. Um, the Pew Research Center has found that in 2007, when they began to track um, religious affiliation, that the percent of nuns, those that would say that they're atheist or agnostic or have no affiliation, was 16% of the nation in America here. And now, today, the percent is 30 maybe a little higher. So we're definitely seeing an ongoing trend of rejecting religion in America. And at the rate the numbers are moving, before the end of my lifetime, those affiliated with any type of religious affiliation will be a minority. And those that are affiliated as evangelical Christians will even be a smaller minority. And what's a little disturbing is that according to the report, the unaffiliated say that they are not looking for any religion to find. They think that religious organizations are too concerned with money and power not focused or too focused on rules, and too involved in politics. And these statistics and comments are a reminder that religion, as defined by most people, will never be the answer. The answer is found in that which is greater than religion. And that is what we will find as we move into the book of Mark chapter 2. It is here that we see Jesus has four separate confrontations with the religious leaders of the day that kind of represented religion. And we will be looking at the first of those four in our passage today. And to some extent, these religious leaders known as teachers of the law and the Pharisees stood for everything that the people then and even people now can't stand about religion. The term religion is really a neutral term that is best defined as the way we 
live out our relationship with God. There's nothing wrong with that, but it turns negative when those religious leaders begin to control that relationship and require that the individuals must go through them to access God and must follow certain additional rules that they have come up with in order to be righteous, in order to receive God's blessings. For example, the Ten Commandments, most of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments. One of the commandments is to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's the commandment. But the religious leaders of that day decided that they were going to define that by adding a bunch of rules, a lot of rules. A couple of those rules was that you couldn't walk more than two-thirds of a mile on the Sabbath. Another one was that you couldn't look in a mirror that was fixed on a wall. Another one was that you couldn't even light a candle. Now, you could hire a Gentile to light that candle. I'm not sure how that would go over today in today's society, but you could. What was intended to be a day of reflecting on the loving character of God was turned into a day that reflected the cruel character of the Pharisees and the scribes. And this behavior of defining the law by adding additional rules led to a spiritual pride and arrogance of those religious leaders. We even see this with Paul before he was converted. His name was still Saul. And he testified to the fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was from the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to the righteousness in the law, found blameless. He was boastful. He formerly relied, trusted in, and bragged about the fact that he was righteous. And that righteousness was based on him following a bunch of rules. And as a result of this arrogance of these leaders, they were very judgmental and quick to condemn others. They felt they had a right to control and instruct others, leading them to have this sense of power over others as it related to spirituality and morality. Unfortunately, this is exactly what many people think of religion today. A bunch of rules made up by a bunch of self-righteous leaders who you have to go through to get to God even though they're no better than any of us. It is this setting where we pick up our passage and before we see this first confrontation between Jesus and these religious leaders, we're introduced to these four guys from someplace in Galilee. Not the five guys, burgers and fries. Not the two guys, you got a company, a moving company here, two guys in a truck. Uh, they're located in Logan here. If you're from Southern California, I'm regressing here. If you're from, if you're from, if you're from Southern California, there's a place called Two Guys from Italy, or there used to be, that was a pizza place. But no, this is, this is four guys. 
And we're going to learn a little bit about them before we see Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders. So we pick up in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat, right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. There are several things that we should notice about these, these four guys. The first thing is that they were all in. There were four guys, men, carrying this pallet, this mat, but all indications were that there were probably more individuals that came along with them. In another translation, it says, and they, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Maybe mother, brother, sister, friends got together and said, we need to take him to Jesus. And so as a community, they did that. We, we don't know how far they traveled. We don't know if the four men were the four men that started being the four men that carried him. But we know that there's probably more than just the four guys. It was a community. It wasn't one individual alone. It's worth stopping and considering that in our own lives, in our relationships with others. The fact that it wasn't one guy just dragging him along. Four guys could do more than one guy could do, right? Maybe you know someone that needs the transformation power of Jesus in their lives. What allies, what friends do you have to come alongside and help bring that person to Jesus? Have you asked others to pray with you for that person? Have you ask them to assist you in meeting that person's need, whatever it may be. Maybe it's just to go play a round of golf, go hunting, or have some tea with some other individuals. Second, their faith made a difference, and Jesus recognized their faith. The scripture says that Jesus saw their faith. It doesn't say necessarily that Jesus even saw their faces. I imagine that Jesus didn't see all of their faces. Some of them were still up on the roof. I don't know if they peered in and Jesus saw their faces. There, if there were others, they were still outside. They definitely couldn't get inside. But Jesus recognized their faith by their action. He didn't even concentrate on the paralytic, whether we don't know. Mark doesn't mention it. Jesus doesn't mention it. What type of faith he had, if he had any faith at all. It was just the faith of these four guys that Jesus mentions. 
should make us ask the question of ourselves whether we have similar faith for those in our lives that need healing and need forgiveness. Do we have faith that Jesus can make a difference in their lives? And what action does that faith stir in us? What action do we take if we have that faith? Do we invite them? Do we bring them to a small group? Do we talk to them about pursuing God? You know, just as the four guys here, your faith can make a difference in another person's life. Never doubt that. Understand that. They persevered. These four guys didn't let obstacles get in the way. And homes in ancient Israel typically had a stairway on the outside that led up to the flat terrace roof. The buildings or homes were usually used to be six feet tall, so that would not have worked for me. But there's a beam that went across the middle and then rafters that went over to other posts. The roof was kind of made up of brushwood, which is basically heavy twigs. And then on top of that, they would mix this clay with straw. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, referring to this scripture, it talks about the fact that at this particular house, they were, that clay and straw were tiles. And so we have these four guys go up the stairway. They go up to the roof. They disassemble probably some clay tiles and then have to dig through the branches, making sure they're not hitting the post to get that mat down to the ground. I'm sure, if you think about this, that what they did probably cost them personally. I imagine that there were people looking at them saying, are you guys crazy? What do you think you're doing? I imagine that maybe the owner of the home was saying, are you guys going to pay me back for this? I don't know if anybody called the Capernaum police, but maybe somebody did. But they still went forward and dug that hole in the roof to lower that mat. And again, consider yourself. Maybe we do have faith that Jesus can transform our friend's life. But are we willing to go through any obstacle to see it happen, whether financially or socially? Are we willing to do that? Those four guys brought him to a person. They didn't bring him to a religion. You know, religion assumes that you can do something to contribute to your salvation, that you can keep commandments, that you can perform ordinances, that you can live a good moral life, and somehow that is going to make you worthy and God's going to approve and bless you. The fact is that this man had nothing to offer at all, right? He couldn't offer anything. And his four guys that carried him understood that. 
that there was nothing that religion could offer this guy or that this guy could offer religion. There was no purpose for them to bring this guy to a synagogue. The only person they could bring him to was Jesus. What are we bringing individuals to in our lives? Do we invite them here to a building? Do we invite them to a way of living that's somewhat middle class? Do we invite them to a program? Or do we invite them to Jesus? These four guys had to be surprised by Jesus' immediate response to what they did. The scripture says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Okay, now why would Jesus lead with that? We have a paralytic man here, and Jesus leads by saying, your sins are forgiven. There's a couple reasons, considerations to think about in regards to this. Jesus uses the man's more obvious physical need to point to his greater need. Why was it a greater need? Because it was an eternal need, not a temporal need. Jesus could heal the paralytic, but he was still going to physically die. What was greater was spiritual healing. Eternal life was at stake. It should be noted that Jesus addressed the greater need, but he did not ignore the reality of this man's current condition. He did heal him. And we ought to keep this in mind when we are ministering to others. Sometimes we do one at the sake of another. Sometimes we see an individual that needs food, that may be starving or needs food, and we give them the gospel, but we don't give them anything to eat. And then sometimes we give them something to eat, but we don't give them the gospel. We need to do both. We need to meet people's physical needs, but we also need to make sure that their spiritual, eternal need is met. Second, when Jesus forgave the paralytic sins to address those in the crowd that represented, represented the religion of the day. Those who would immediately say that he was not following the law as it related to forgiving of sins. And that's exactly what they said. They said, but some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And the way God forgives sins is through a priest and an offering for the sin of atonement. No one could declare sins forgiven without fulfilling the sacrificial system that was in place and that even God put in place. And they saw themselves as the one holding the keys to that system. They had to come through them. 
And it is here where we see that Jesus is greater than religion. Moving on in our passage, it says, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. The moment the paralyzed man stood up and walked out the doors was the moment that the religion built by those religious leaders was thrown to the ground and shattered. Jesus proved that he is greater than any human religious system, that he has authority to forgive our sins apart from anything else. The religious leader's authority had just been replaced by the authority of Jesus. And the audience was stunned and amazed. It says, and the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. What had they never seen like this before? Authority to heal? Authority over religion? Authority to forgive sins? And Jesus actually, actually he confirms what the religious leaders of the day said, that no one can forgive sins except God. But what they failed to consider was that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. That he was the high priest of our confession, as Hebrews 3.1 says. That he was God in the flesh that Mark set out to show us in this book. They failed to recognize that rules and status and money and power and control were not the authority. Jesus was. All those things were not needed to live out a relationship with God. Only Jesus was needed. Jesus' response to the religion of the day was to say what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It wasn't the religious leaders who could open the door to God, who could mediate salvation, who could declare God's blessings. According to Paul in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. You know, in his interaction with a paralyzed man, Jesus showed us that anyone who recognizes their need can, can, can come directly to him for healing and for forgiveness. It's not found in a church. It's not found in some religious system. It's not found by the most popular author of the day. It's found in Jesus. The world is full of religions, 
and the details of them are different, but the end result is always the same. It's you can only come to God through us, through our institutional authority, through our priesthood, through our approval of your righteousness. And maybe you've been trying to find God through religion, trying to find the correct church, trying to do all the right religious rituals, trying to keep what you were told about God's commandments, trying to live a moral, righteous life. And what you found is that religion has left you wanting because religion can never fill that hole because you're always trying to do better. It can only be filled, and it's never open except through Jesus. We need Jesus. Jesus invites you to come directly to him by faith to meet your needs. And that starts with your greatest need, your need for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, I find it amazingly ironic with the 30% nuns of the world, soon maybe to be 40%, they have no clue that their beef against religion is really no different than Jesus's. Jesus had the same beef. Jesus was the first person to admit that the religious leaders had created a system that had put a heavy, heavy burden on them and gave them no rest, gave them no peace. That's why Jesus said to them, and he says to you and to me today, come to me, all of you who are weary and tired of carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Are you in need of rest? Religion's not going to give you rest. Only Jesus will give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for this passage in Scripture and what it teaches us. We thank you for your authority over everything, over creation, and that you have the authority to forgive sins. And Father, we also pray that you would just speak to us about what type of friend we can be to those around us, what faith means and what type of action we can take. We just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.